The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. Pooty, Nate, Jordan, Dave, Garage Mahal. Not popping off though. <laughs> but you um, still said it. You still I did said say it. it. I did say yeah. it. I, I literally started this episode being like, don't say popping off. Don't say popping off. <laughs> Just I, become your new thing. It's just like. It's a catchphrase. That's what the kids are doing these days. I that's think. not what you, you don't want that to be your catchphrase though. That it's popping Although I will say Air Jordan is, has caught on a lot more than yep. you might think after just a few episodes. Jordan people is, people yeah. at church. Oh, hey, Air Jordan. <laughs> Somebody at the conference a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, you're Air Jordan. I guess I am. Yeah. That's funny. It, it's shocking how many people don't know who I am, and then they hear my voice, and then they're all of a sudden like, oh, I know you, and be like, you know my voice. And just yeah. like, that's weird, eh? Yeah, that um, is weird. So we're the Rebels, and we're back with another regular episode. We're going to continue in this series that we've been doing. But before that, we have some breaking news, and that is... breaking. Chris took our advice and watched the new Top Gun. I totally did. <laughs> All um, right. Tell us. I, what well, was it? How, how was it? It was amazing. I didn't just watch it once. I watched it back to back. So like we, we rented it because I want to buy a physical copy and I didn't want to go to the store because I had the flu. I rented it on Amazon Prime and then watched it. We literally finished it, which is like, that was amazing. And then we we're like, we should watch another movie because it's like seven o'clock or whatever. And then we're like, we couldn't find another one that even compared to watching Top Gun again. So we just like, let's just watch it again. So I watched <laughs> Rewind it, the tape. So I watched it three times in about a 48 hour period. Wow. That's dedication. Um, it was awesome. It was so I know. good. I know. So one, I actually thought you guys were exaggerating a little bit about in terms of the like lack of wokeness yeah, at all. No, I told you. There's no, no shred of wokeness. It's, there, there's nothing. Yeah. Like where it's like it's oddly weird because I like the first time I watched it, you're kind of a little bit on edge waiting for all these like little like Yeah. How um, you watch you know, movies now, basically. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then the second time I was just able to just relax and be like, I can just absorb this story that probably doesn't exist you know i don't know airplanes can do those things and then like all the little things like that i wasn't expecting i went into the movie spoilers for anybody who's watched it or hasn't watched it stop listening for about the next two minutes i expected <laughs> like the story to be rooster upset with him about his dad right and like blaming him that goose died and that wasn't like they were just like no 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 that was cleared i'm upset with him because you pulled my papers and i'm just like Oh, like I didn't, I didn't expect that to be the thing. And just like the way they linked all these, like the past to the present, yep. but not overbearingly just trying to do the same thing that they did yeah. 20 years ago, making the movie. That's how you make a sequel. And yeah. then the little love story that was uh, with Tom and that lady, it's believable. It's good. It's tasteful. Like there was no like weird scenes that I have to there skip was actually, through. There was actually like, less in terms of just like. Like the sex scene in the original Top Gun is a bit more risque than that one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't, well, right? like, 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 yeah, you hear music. Like, yeah, the, there's no music in this one. No, <laughs> it no, just no, cuts. Just like, it's just that. This is a great movie. If they would make movies like this, I would actually go back to the theater. Yeah, that's like, it. Um, I know. Which is partly why I'm like wanting to make sure I watched it. I loved all the like side characters. Just the way they like link them all with their all their call signs. And so, like, obviously, I went home and started giving us all call signs. Which, what are they? I'm not prepared to share that okay. on there. On there Fair mostly because I can't remember them. Um, so <laughs> they're written somewhere. They're written down. I do lists. Dave's is great. It's knobs. Knobs <laughs> <laughs> and dives. I have no idea. That's funny. Um, All right. Who's your favorite character? My favorite character is Hangman. No. Oh, okay. So H Hangman, I thought like there's the Val Kilmer character from like yep. the first movie that they've, they've redone, but they did it in a way that I was just like, he's hilarious throughout yeah. the movie. Like, He's like, I'm good. 
I'm very good. You know what? I have no problems with him being a bit arrogant. Like, I was just like, he's a fighter pilot. This He's already number one in his class at a school that only 1% of the people in the world go to. Right. He says this line, the reason you fail, Rooster, is because you don't fly like Maverick. And to win this mission, you need to fly like Maverick. And he's not wrong. He's right. like, he's dead right about it all. He's just a dink. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I just like, he's such a good, it's such a good character. How awesome of a call sign is Hangman when yeah, you're a fighter pilot? It's pretty good. Um, yeah, just I was I was blown away of how good that good this movie. You're is. welcome. And then yeah. Miles Teller couldn't look like Goose any more than if he like. I know he did a good job with that. They yeah. even had that weird scene where he's like he, they he's look in the picture, yeah. And like I honestly couldn't tell if that was Goose or just Miles Teller. This is unbelievable. So there, I'll say one other thing about the movie. I'm on a rant about this yeah, movie, but you're going. A movie like Top Gun doesn't really need need great acting. Yeah, like, that's fair. It's, yeah. it's, it's action. It's about it's, the action. Yeah. It's about the, like, you could just play Fire yourself. Pilots, exactly, yeah. right? And I actually was shocked about the amount of emotion I felt. Like, I actually teared up twice in the movie, which you're, is... You're we, not an emotional guy. Not at all. <laughs> like, when when Tom Cruise, like, basically, this, again, I said spoilers. When Goose comes back and... Sa- not Goose. Uh, Rooster comes back and saves him. And then Tom Cruise comes in, like, you expect this, and he's like, thank you for saving saving my life. And there's just like, he's just like, what are you doing? He's like, you told me not to think. And there's just like this, like, like. <laughs> that, that was a good line. This eh? is such like, a great, What were you like, thinking? Scene. You told me not to think. And there's just like, yeah, that's true. I did. <laughs> yeah, I did tell you. I did tell you that. And then the, they're in the plane and he's, he can't eject, like, like the way they found a way to tie in the old fighter pilot. So they're both together in the plane. Cause like, it was funny. Heather watched it and she was like, I was just like, I didn't expect that to happen with the, yeah. and she was just like, well the whole point was they had to be in the plane together. Right. And like, I never even thought of that. Everything they did in that movie, they just recreate that multiple times in Hollywood. Yeah. I'm there for it. Yeah. In fact, I'm so there for it. I might actually go see Mission Impossible in the theater. I don't even think I've seen any but the first one. But I'm like, you know what, Tom Cruise, you crazy Scientologist, <laughs> take my money, man. Take it. Just take it. Um, yeah, that's fair. Can I tell you a story about Hangman before I, I, I let go you go? Go for it. Before you let me go, I, just, I have a podcast to record. <laughs> so Hangman, I, I listened to an interview of him. So he's like kind of a nobody actor, right? Yeah, I recognized him, but I couldn't tell what from. So he was telling a story about, so Tom Cruise pulls up on set. And he, apparently Tom Cruise is like fairly well known for like, he takes everybody onto his yacht. And like the, when you're in a Tom Cruise movie, you're in like Tom Cruise's world for this for this movie. And so Tom Cruise wanted this guy to like learn how to fly because he flies the planes. And so he's like, you can't be a real pilot if you don't know how to do this. So Tom took him up and took him skydiving, taught him how to fly a plane. And he was like, the only rule is that you, you jump out of the airplane without anybody else your first time, which is like the opposite. And so this guy, Hangman, who was like, not a real thing, now is an actual pilot, all because Tom Cruise is just like, this is what I'm doing to make this movie that if you want to be in this role, this is what you have to do. That's awesome. And it's like, isn't that crazy? Like Tom Cruise just changing people's lives all over the place. There you Um, go. Now, if only he was converted to Christianity. Oh my word. That'd be amazing. (laughs) Um, Take that discipleship, Tom, and point it towards the kingdom. So that was seven and a half minutes about me talking about Top Gun. Yeah. So um, if that didn't make you want to go watch the movie, except now that you've uh, heard some of, some, of, some of the most uh, intimate moments of the movie have been spoiled to you. But I will say that Chris tells them almost as well as they're depicted on the big screen. <laughs> the faster I talk, the more excited I am. If you ever, if That's, fair. Like, That's fair. Um, which is why sometimes I can preach 6,000 words in 35 seconds. Yes. <laughs> like, Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in. No gracious segue here because we've talked about Top Gun long enough. This little mini-series we're doing is about paradigm shifts in faith. We've talked about several things, including eschatology, including complementarianism is not enough. What does it mean for patriarchy? And we've talked about this stuff for a little bit, but now we're going to talk about something that I would imagine maybe a lot of our listeners were with us on the eschatology thing, with us in terms of the patriarchy stuff, because a lot of our listeners are, are of a similar vein. This one might be a little bit weird for people, though. So... We're going to talk about paradigm shifts when it comes to the divine council. And what we mean by that is a proper understanding of biblical cosmology. What is in this world that God has made? I think the best place to start, we're going to go to a couple of places. So, I mean, if you're listening to us on the road, you can't follow us in your Bible. But if you're at home, you want to pull out your Bible, I think that would be a good thing for this particular episode because you kind of got to see it here for yourself. Because I don't know about you guys, when this worldview, sort of a biblical cosmology was opened up to me, it felt like a a massive shift in my entire thinking. Would that be true for you guys? This is, again, another one that's new for us. When we were talking about talking this through, 
I remember thinking like, how have I not heard this before? Yeah. Cause I it seems obvious now. Yeah. And like, but I'm also like, why is just not, just not something we've ever talked about? Like yeah. not just you and me, I just mean Christians period. Like, um, I think this is the one that's like easily the one that people don't have a clue what we're even talking about. Yet. Yeah. So, so why don't I go there? So several years ago, I remember I was preaching kind of through the Bible in terms of what's the big narrative of the Bible. And that's when I was first sort of introduced to this idea. And it was partially because when I was looking at the flood, there's two predominant views when you look at the beginning of, of Genesis 6. And we'll get there. So I'm just going to summarize them for you. If, if this is all new to you, just hang on. We're going to walk you through things. When you get to Genesis 6, and there's this weird couple of verses, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, it talks about how the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they, they intermingled with them, and they created the Nephilim. Now, there's two general ideas on that, and one is that Moses is talking about the godly line of Seth mixing with the ungodly line of Cain. A lot of, I would say, conservative biblical scholars, that's the view that they take. But as I was studying it, there's, that just opens up more questions. First being, why is all the masculinity on one side of that verse and all the femininity on the other side of that verse in terms of the intermingling of believers with non-believers? But then the second question is, when a believer and a non-believer have a kid, they generally don't sprout giants, right? So, so that was another question I had. And so I, I was sort of introduced to this concept, but I hadn't fleshed it out entirely. Fast forward two years, and then I'm preaching in Genesis. And when I'm preaching in Genesis, I saw at the very beginning, even just the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's this moment, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit eternally exist, the triune God of Scripture, but then enter into creation and everything else gets created. But there's this moment, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So he creates the two of them. What I started to see was that God created heaven complete and full, and he created earth empty and void and incomplete. And then so what he does is he creates man and he places him in a garden. So you, so you got to think, when God creates the world, he creates the world, plants a garden, and then puts the man in Eden, and then gives him the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. So the idea there is that the command to Adam was make the rest of earth look like Eden. I've given you the prototype. So Eden is this sort of place where heaven and earth sort of collide. And obviously you can go to Revelation 21 and 22 when when heaven and earth reunite. There's this Edenic sort of reality to it. So it's this kind of return to to Eden. So Eden is, is mapped sort of after the heavenlies. And so the idea here is, Adam, go and make earth look like heaven. Right, go and populate it and fill it up. So, but I say all that to say that God, when He created the heavens, He populated them. He created the celestial beings. And so, what we're saying, and I'll just cite it, and then maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll show you our biblical proof for it. So, here's what we are saying when we talk about the divine council, when we talk about this paradigm shift it's we believe that God created, in creating the heavens, created celestial beings which is what scripture refers to as the sons of God or the Ben Elohim. And these sons of God are celestial beings that God created to share in his rule with. So Adam was created and obviously God created him as a vice regent to rule over the earth, but God created these celestials to share his authority with him. Now they're always under him, but what this shows is that what we commonly refer to as just angels are not merely created beings kind of floating around in heaven with harps, but these are celestials that God created to be sort of these lesser gods that would bring about his rule and his reign and his created order. Is that fair? Yep. Is that a good, de yep. good definition we're yep. working with that? All right. So we're going to show you scripturally where this is. Let's start with Genesis 6. I, th I think it, it paints a good picture, right? So in Genesis chapter 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
And then it goes on to say, the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great upon the earth. And so you actually get this flood narrative coming on the heels of this sort of divine treason that takes place. And so this phrase, the sons of God, is a phrase that scripture often uses, always uses, in fact, to talk about celestial beings. And so what's happening here is there's a rebellion where these created celestials are rebelling against God and trying to thwart his plans and his purposes on the earth. So you have to think, you're in the sixth chapter of Genesis, you're only three chapters after the fall, and in Genesis 3.15, God promises, you know, on the heels of the fall, that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the snake, and promises this sort of enmity between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And so what you have, I think, here in Genesis 6 is these celestials who rebel and try to thwart God's plan, trying to, to, to sort of attack the seed of the Messiah, the bloodline of the Messiah, by intermingling with the human women to sort of corrupt the bloodline. And I think that's what you're seeing there, and, and I think that's actually what leads to the flood. That is sort of, uh, if you ever read sort of Dr. Michael Heiser or any of these people, this is often called the sin of the watchers, right? The, the sin of these celestials who left their proper station and came down to try to thwart God's plans on the earth. Backing up, I mean, I even think that when you see Satan show up in the garden, I think what you're actually seeing is that's when he rebelled. Right? We often say that there's this, this uh, prehistoric war in heaven where, where Satan tried to war against God. And he was cast down. I think that's a misunderstanding of Revelation. I think actually when Satan appears in the garden is when he leaves his proper dwelling to come down and tries to corrupt mankind. That's his rebellion. And I don't think that Satan is any more powerful than any of the other celestial rebels. I just think he sort of has the street cred as being the first guy who rebelled. And so he rebels there. You have the second rebellion in Genesis 6. You guys with me so far? Yeah? Anything you guys want to add? No? Okay. You're on a roll. <laughs> okay, so we're, so then, then you can kind of flip forward, just recognizing that in chapter 11, you get the Tower of Babel. And what happens there is mankind is united in its rebellion and tries to, so God says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth to have dominion over it. And the people united in the rebellion against God, it says that they want to make a great name for themselves as opposed to a great name for God. And instead of congregating and spreading out, they, or uh, sorry, um, dividing and spreading out, they actually congregate and build up. And they're trying to ascend to heaven without God himself. And I just say that because then if you jump to Deuteronomy 32, you get these verses in 8 and 9 that it's hard to make sense of. This is Moses' song, and so Moses is going through the history of the world. In verse 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy 32, he says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So when you ask the question, when was it that the Most High divided mankind and set the borders of the peoples? Well, that happened after the Tower of Babel. That was the judgment against the united rebellion of mankind. It says there that he confused the languages and then that he spread mankind across the surface of the earth. So you have that, and it seems like, according to Moses here, that when he divvied them up, he divvied them up according to the number of rebellious celestials that had fallen whether that's in the days of Noah or afterwards. The beautiful thing about God's law is that the punishment always fits the crime. So if their crime was they did not want to live under King Yahweh, then their punishment was that they would be divvied up and actually given to lesser gods. They were actually handed over to these celestials. So we would just say that they were given essentially demons to rule over them. Yeah, you see this all over the book of Judges too, right? So almost every time throughout the book of Judges that a nation like the Philistines or whoever subjects Israel, it actually points out that Israel turns and worships their gods. That's right. And their gods are always Asheroth, Baal, like name the demon. It's when Israel rejects that God and turns back to Yahweh is when God sends the judge to deliver them. That's right. You see this played out. That's the story of Judges over and over and over yeah, again. The cycle. Right? Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And so what you see then... After the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11, what you see is Genesis 12 starts off, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so the idea here is that 
at Babel, God is disinheriting the nations, but adopting one nation. And through Abram, he's going to create his own portion, his own people. So all of these demons have jurisdiction over specific people groups, but Israel belongs to God. That's his nation, his people, which actually starts to shed light on why throughout Scripture, God is constantly saying, they're mine, right? Don't turn and worship those other gods. Don't turn. And and this is also all of the exclusionary laws when it talks about Israel saying, don't do the things that the other nations do. It's because they're following after lesser gods. They're being run by demonic entities, but that's not your fate. Everybody with me so far? Yeah. Can I add one thing? Please do. Which also helps for people who struggle with some of the hard verses in like Joshua, for instance, when it's like wipe out the entire land. It's because like a lot of that is because God doesn't want us, them intermixing with the, with the pagan nations. It's like, no, God is taking the promised land. He's driving out everybody who isn't part of his crew. Right. Because there's this, this war of the gods, right? This is, this is Yahweh versus the gods. And, and so here's what I want to show you. You guys are probably, um, some of our listeners who this might be new to are, uncomfortable with the language of lesser gods, right? Because does that make us polytheistic or whatever? Just quickly run over to Psalm 82. And I think Psalm 82 is a great passage where you need to have this worldview in order to make sense, I think, of, of Psalm 82. Psalm 82 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So I think when you're looking at this, this sort of alternative understanding to this passage is that this is talking about God and earthly rulers. Well, first of all, I don't think that that makes sense because you have them compared to humans, right? In, in verses 6 and 7, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall, like men, die. So he's actually making a statement. The other thing to say is that Jesus actually uses, he points back to this verse when he's talking to the Pharisees to defend his own divinity, right? He, he says, like, look, you have in your own worldview this idea that there are lesser gods. So he uses this as a justification for his own claim to divinity. Just think about this. So God takes his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So this is God sitting down with those celestials that he disinherited the nations to and essentially saying, you're not ruling according to my law. You're not ruling according to my justice. And therefore, he condemns them and says, you know, your, your time of ruling over those nations will come to an end. And the passage actually ends with this, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. In other words, because they're not ruling those nations justly according to my law, I'm going to bring them back, which is actually the story of, of Christ coming into the world and winning all of the nations back to himself. With me so far? I didn't plan on doing all the talking. You guys want to no, You're doing great. Talking? Well, that, that's the, the parable of the strongman, right? Binding up all the uh, lesser gods to being able to deceive the nations, right? right. And that's the, that's the verbiage, right? So that's really good. Keep going. Yeah, well, and I would just say, I mean, there's, there's tons of passages you can go to. You can go to Psalm 89, you can go to Psalm 109. There's, there's these verses that talk about in the midst of the gods, O Lord. The Psalms do use this language of amongst all the gods, you are the Lord most high, right? So the psalmists understand this and they use this language of, of other gods, but that's exactly where I wanted to go, Chris. I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Can I throw one more? Go. It also helps make more sense of Hebrews, which is a New Testament Deuteronomy, where Hebrews starts with the first two chapters of Hebrews is basically laying out a case for Christ being supreme over all things. Yeah. And one of them is like, he's made him more above all the angels. And if you're reading that from our perspective, thinking that the divine council is just God, the father, God, the son, and the God, the Holy spirit, it's obvious, obviously he's greater yeah. than all the angels, but like in an old Testament Jewish age, thinking about that idea of the divine council, 
it makes sense to be like, no, he he's much better than all the angels. He's he's ruling over all of them. He, they're yeah. submitted to him. Yeah, it's like it. He's it the makes, king of kings. He's the lord of lords. It, he's the god of gods. It, right. He is the exactly. ruler of rulers. Exactly. And then you get the like Moses was just a servant in the house. God is the one who created the house, and he's lord over it. Like. There's a lot more linking that's happening in the New Testament to these ideas throughout the Divine yep. Council, so we're not crazy. Yeah, and it makes sense of some hard passages, right? I can't tell you how many Christians have, have come and asked, like, man, what's going on with this Prince of Persia and Daniel, right? And so you have this, you know, a celestial being is, is coming to give God's instruction to Daniel, and it says, you know, I would have got here faster, but I was battling with the Prince of Persia. And you're like, what on earth is this? And you don't even get really much of an explanation, but I think it's because the biblical authors are assuming your understanding of this biblical cosmology. And so what we would say the Prince of Persia is, and, and you even see this all throughout Daniel's visions, is you see these principalities warring that symbolize entire nations. Well, it's because they're battling. These are these are demonic, evil forces that are fighting for jurisdiction. They're fighting one another. The, the house of darkness is a house that's divided against itself. And so you have this prince of Persia that has jurisdictional authority over Persia so that God's actual celestial messenger can't get to Daniel immediately until he first wars against the, the principality of darkness, jurisdictionally in charge over Persia. You have these uh, these clues throughout Scripture, but then you jump to the New Testament. I think this is really interesting. So then what we're saying is that what happened jurisdictionally in the garden, if Satan came down and attacked God's representative in Eden, then I think the picture that we were supposed to see as the biblical narrative takes off, when you get to Jacob and Esau and you have this picture of, of Esau coming and selling his birthright for a meal, I think you're supposed to understand something about what happened back in the garden, and that is that Adam sort of surrendered his birthright for a meal, right? He, he surrendered his birthright to Satan, that Satan's, there was some sort of jurisdictional transaction that took place when Satan tricked the ruler of this earth. And that's what Adam was, right? Adam was the king of the earth. He was given dominion by God. He used to rule it under God's authority. God is the only one with ultimate authority. So you fast forward and you get this idea that, so God lays claim to Israel and only Israel, but with a plan to win back the rest of the world. And so you, you fast forward to the New Testament, and you get Jesus in the wilderness with Satan, and Satan's last temptation of Jesus is, if you bow to me, I will give you the nations. And I, I often point out that Jesus did not correct Satan in, in, in terms of his claim to the, the nations, right? And, and there are plenty of passages where Satan's called the god of this world, he's called the powers, uh, the principality of the power of the air, all of these sorts of things. And so what Satan was doing there was offering Jesus a way to get what he came for without going through the cross. And so it gives you a picture then of what's going on at the cross, and that is Christ reclaiming the disinherited nations that were disinherited after the Tower of Babel. So you have Satan, he has this jurisdictional authority in some way over the earth, but Jesus comes along and teaches what his purpose was, right? He says that uh, the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the evil one. Or he says, uh, I came to bind up the strong man so that his house can be plundered. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. He was binding up the strong man. He was binding up the principality of the world so that now the nations can go and, and be taken. We can plunder the house. That's right. And that's, and that's what we would all say the Great Commission is, is the sort of Jesus saying, no, go get me my inheritance. Go get me the nations back. So I just want to tie a few. So when you have this, this biblical framework, suddenly certain verses make more sense, right? So in Ephesians chapter 6, when you get this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of his strength, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And then it says, you know, therefore, this is uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on, it goes through and it says, oh, sorry, I back up, it was verse 12 I was looking for. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, you know, how many Christians have acknowledged the existence of that verse, but they haven't really wrestled with the, what it's saying? And what it's saying is, is that our battle, whether we want to call them culture wars, or whether we want to talk about evangelism, all that kind of stuff, 
what our battle is actually with is against the principalities that are trying to keep the world in bondage under their rule. And I, I think obviously that that's a passage that makes more sense when you understand what we're teaching. And then the last one I want to go to, and then I'll finally let you guys talk a little, is Galatians uh, chapter 4. And in Galatians chapter 4, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set for it by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles, probably better translated principalities, uh, enslaved to the elementary principalities of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. Well, what is he talking about if you don't have this biblical cosmology? What entities that are by nature not God were you enslaved to? We would say you were enslaved to these demons, these celestials. It says, but now you have come to know God or rather be known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and uh, worthless elementary principalities of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So the idea is, is when you become a Christian, you come out from under the power of the demonic entities that rule the nations and come under the jurisdictional authority of King Jesus, who has purchased the lost world for himself. So I think these passages that sometimes I think we shy away from, we don't understand fully, or we just say, oh, there's something going on there that we don't quite understand, they come alive with all kinds of importance when we have this undergirding. Yeah? That was a very good long explanation. (laughs) Do you guys want to say anything? <laughs> well, a, a thing that I found kind of, I guess if we're looking at it, like the paradigm shift, when scripture's talking about like the sons of God, the heavenly host, the morning star, and then it's interesting because you were saying how he created the heavenlies and he created the physical earth, and you go to Genesis and it says he created us, like man, to rule the earth, but he created the lights in the sky to rule the heavens. Yeah. And then when you actually go and look at that, it's it's saying like, it is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. That's right. So then you're even seeing it right there in Genesis. And then is it in Job where he says like when God was creating, it yep. was like the sons of God or the heavenly host were rejoicing or That's something right. along those lines. Yep. So then you actually see like when you start using biblical symbols, you actually start seeing and understanding things better. And even one that just this week I was listening to a podcast and I think it was Gary DeMar talking about you know, Matthew 24, when it says like, you're going to see the stars fall from heaven and you're going to see the moon uh, go dark. And then how that is in reference to other examples in the old Testament where the stars falling are a sign of judgment. Yeah. So then what you're actually seeing though, if you're following all that logic is it's God bringing judgment against the gods of that nation. That's right. And then he's bringing judgment against Israel in the same way, but it's just like, it totally opens up what's really happening there when you understand that these these stars that we see are a picture of of something spiritual. That's right. And then the significance of all of it. So that to me was just like crazy to realize. And even like when it says the gods of Egypt, those are real gods, like a God or multiple gods of Egypt. And then the thing that really just blew my mind was when, you know, you have the gods of Greek mythology. Yeah. Those were actually probably actual being like divine beings. That's right. That they were really worshiping. Warring against. And it's like, I always just pictured that as like these crazy Greeks just making stuff up and, you know, drawing pictures and stuff, these fanciful stories where it's like, no, they actually, now they did create fanciful stories. Of course. But they were likely actual beings that they were worshiping. But how many of those fanciful stories are the story of the Nephilim, the God mating with a human and creating something like a, like a half God kind of thing. Well, you think of the story of the Titans. I mean, the story of the Titans is essentially the story of the Nephilim in Genesis six, right? Like it, it is this, the gods coming and mixing and mingling and creating these, these things that then need to be destroyed and locked up. And and in fact, you, you can follow this logic. It talks about in, in the book of Jude and in uh, second Peter, it talks about the disobedient celestials that were disobedient in the days of Noah and that God changed them in the bottomless pit. What were, what were the Titans? The Titans were imprisoned in the center of the earth, right? 
demons don't have the creative capacity of God the Father. All they have to work with is, is the world around them that they know. And so even you think of many of the creation myths of surrounding nations, where is the creation coming from? It's coming out of the watery abyss. Well, why is that? Because they recognize the flood and the, the creation of a new humanity and all this kind of stuff. And so, so it, it does make sense of the world that we live in and the myths that have arisen in the world that we live in. Absolutely. And I get it. Like, if, if anybody's listening to this for the first time, they're like, right, well, they finally lost the plot, right? <laughs> Search the scriptures and just recognize that the, the scriptures give a far more robust understanding of this created world that we live in. You have to challenge your presupposition, too. Like, we all think of, like, heaven, it's closed off to all the, like, demon, like but there is that idea in Job where, like, Satan comes and yeah. Satan means the accuser. He's there and, and God says, consider my servant Job. Like he's like, well, and, and like, what does it say there? It says that the sons of God were assembled before Yahweh, before God most high. So like what's happening there? Well, there's a picture of the divine council. God is summoning the lesser gods to judge like he did in, in uh, Psalm 82, how it is that they're ruling. And what happens? Satan, who is already cast out because of his first rebellion in Eden, right? It says, and Hasatan was there as well. And so he comes amidst the council and begins to accuse, right? And so you look at that and you're like, man, what a weird beginning to a book. No, no, this is this is the Jewish understanding of the world that God had created for them, just playing itself out in the story. Exactly. And that's where I was going with that whole idea of like, there's obviously a way that this council is existing because we see it happen in scripture, right? Yeah. Like we see Satan go to this council and talk about it. So like, I think a lot of people who might be thinking, oh, these guys have lost the plot finally, is <laughs> just because you're you're basing that on a presupposition that just scripture just doesn't actually back up. And like you mentioned, Jordan, about like, what's the paradigm shift is that we were doing the same thing six months ago, eight months ago. You know what I mean? We we're just like, oh, I never even considered that because to, to me, in, the, in my mind, the divine council was God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And that's the whole council. And it's like, no, no, that's God. And that's the Trinity. But he did create this next level of like, authority and government you know, yeah. that half of which or a third of which does fall and he gives the nations too, right when it was supposed to be adam and i think once you start seeing that a lot a lot of scripture makes a lot more sense yeah and there is extra biblical literature that makes all this more explicit so like when you think of enoch first enoch in particular when you think of some of the second temple literature it makes this stuff more explicit. And now we have to be careful. That stuff's not scripture. And we would say that a guy like Dr. Michael Heiser, who wrote The Unseen Realm, which we've all read, and appreciated a lot of the work in it. You know, he's he's an anti-Calvinist, which is first mark against him. And I think there's some issues with, with Dr. Michael Heiser, including that he puts too much emphasis on extra-biblical literature. But I do think that this is the literature that shaped the worldview of the early Jews. And so even though they didn't put it on par with scripture, it does inform us as to how they interpreted the actual scriptures. And so in there, it actually, in Enoch, it actually names that there were 70, right, 70 celestials that God divvied up the nations to. And then when you go and you fast forward to the nations that are born out of the children of Noah, it names 70 of them. And so you have this sort of 70-70, and there's several other kind of just apocryphal writings that confirm these worldviews. So we talk about paradigm shift. So why is it important for us to understand this? I think it makes two major benefits to this. The first one that I would say is it helps make sense of problem passages, right? So one that I'm thinking of is when Paul comes along and he says, he's talking about not taking others to court, right? And he's saying, can't you overcome this yourself? This is in like 1 Corinthians 7 or 6 or 7 or 8 or something like that. And he says, don't you know that you will judge angels? And like most people, what does that mean, right? Like, because there's no other reference to this in anywhere. But I think what he's getting at there is that God is actually replacing the rebellious celestials with human rulers. And so that's like, it makes sense of problem passages, but then it actually makes sense of the mission a little bit, right? Like you and I have talked about this, Jordan, how this idea that God is now creating a new family with new human sons of God to replace the rebellious celestials that fell. And I think that's just a, a beautiful story arc that you completely miss if you don't have this. Amen. Nobody has anything to say. Like, <laughs> so I Sometimes I get going and I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm leaving anything <laughs> to say. One thing that but. I think that you say is important with like the Heiser stuff, while he does overemphasize it, it helps you get in the mind of a Jew or like yeah. a, a somebody who was an Israelite 
how they would have understood their culture. Cause I forget what was the place where they found the scrolls. Um, that's just like the dead sea scrolls uh, in the book he mentions. And it's like talking about in that pagan area, their understanding of their God. And I forget what their name was, but he was like up on a mountain with the other gods. And yeah. just so like painting, yeah, just like painting the picture of how th- even like pagans in that time understood and how it's interesting how it was their God on a mountain in like similar picture and imagery that we see in scripture about God, where he is at his yep. throne in the heavenlies with his divine counsel around him. So I think it's, it. while we don't want to look at that as inspired, but it is still helpful. Absolutely. And that's something yeah. that I think for us in our current context, we, we kind of miss that. We're thousands of years in the future yeah. and we just kind of pick up this ancient document that has language and themes and uh, styles of writing that most of us really just kind of pick it up and try to read it like we would a book today. Yep. But we have to remember that like, it's not written to us. It's not written for us directly, indirectly it is yep. years later, but we have to try our best. And that's where like biblical study, like it takes work, yeah, right? It's, it does, it's not, for sure. it's not easy to do. And that's why I think like all of us, you know, we've been Christians for well, myself for 10 years. I don't actually know about you guys for longer than that. Yep. It's like, we're just after years of study and prayer these things are just like starting to come to us. Like it's yeah. not just like these are immediate things that have just jump off the page clearly immediately. Like it takes work and study and, and all that. But I think it's just like an important thing for people to remember that we're not them. Yeah. And it ab- does take absolutely. work. Yeah. You shouldn't probably like com- have somebody who just converted be like, all right, let me tell you about the divine council now. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's right. Like, let's yeah. sit down and there's be- steps to get there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I do think that's important, right? But there is a sort of like feed the milk first and when they're ready, start feeding solid food. And I do think that there are some of these themes that like it would be easy to be taken astray in terms of, whoa, it doesn't mean polytheism and all that. No, no, no. Like we're very clear. God, the father is unique. He is the uncreated being. We are talking about created beings. We're not talking about Zeus being on the same page as God, the father. But we are saying that Zeus or whatever, you know, his actual name is Zeus. He was called by the Greeks who actually worshiped him was a celestial. I think, again, I think you actually see a little bit of this in, in how Paul addresses the Greeks at the Areopagus. So he's like, I can perceive that you're very religious. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly. He says, you know, um, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along I observe, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, right? So he's talking about this, like, divvying up of the disinherited nations. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and perhaps even find him. So what Paul's actually talking about is this divvying up of the nations and being given over to the sons of God, but that the sons of God's task, God given by Yahweh, was to actually help people. It's that phrase that Paul uses in Galatians. They're like guardians or or, or placeholders until such a time as God can win jurisdictional authority over them again, and they can be won back to him. But then it says that they would seek their way to God and and find him. Yet, he is actually not far uh, from reach from any of us. In him, we live and move and have our being. Even some of our own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed from the art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there's this idea that like, look, you were led astray by lesser God. Their job was to hold the place so that you could one day return to Yahweh, but instead they sought your worship for themselves. God's overlooking that worship of ignorance, but now is the time when the living God is calling everyone everywhere to repent. In other words, you're now being called back to the living God. And so you, you see these this stuff that just, it doesn't make full sense until you get the full biblical picture of it. I think it's really important for us to grasp the whole story. And I think that's what, in terms of the the practical advantage to having this perspective, is that it just helps you see the full story far more clearly. It is amazing to think of yourself, and this is maybe just the, the literary nerd in me, but like it's amazing to think of yourself in the middle of like a Greek epic. 
where you are serving the God who is warring against the other gods. And your job in that war is to go and to proclaim the gospel of freedom to the foot soldiers of that demonic God and tell them that if you lay down your arms and you surrender to the God of gods, that you can you can come and have a place in his kingdom and, and get a, an inheritance in his kingdom. And you're like, man, it just, it gives this cosmic significance to the gospel that you just don't get otherwise. It's amazing. Yeah, well, you've said a few times, just like the power of story. Totally. Right? And and how like, like that sounds unreal. And who would not want to bear arms and just get to work and like serve that? And it's like even just like when you think of the gospel and you put it in terms of the conquering king has come to a fallen kingdom and he has given to them terms of surrender. And he has said to them, his enemies, I will not only grant you pardon, but I will adopt you into my family and you will become heirs in my kingdom. It's like, what a unbelievably epic thing that is so then you see that that's all in the context of this cosmic battle for the universe and it's like man let's get like let's go yeah right it's it's crazy and how many times have we talked on even on this podcast of like families who lose their kids because their kids are being enticed by the stories that the world will tell them you know you can make your own destiny you can identify with however you whoever whoever you want to be they're telling them this story and I think Christians, oftentimes we lose our kids and we lose future generations because we fail to tell better stories. What better story is this? This is this is the epic. This is Gilgamesh on steroids, right? This is this is the God of gods waging war against the lesser gods and overcoming the evil rebels. Like, oh. Well, and how sad is it when you think of the story that most Christians are believing is that we lose. Oh, I know, right? Like, right? so so your average Christian, the gospel is about individual salvation. We are saving individuals using the gospel life preservers on a sinking ship of the Titanic. And, you know, this world gets destroyed, and then there's a remade ethereal existence that all those who are saved by grace are whisked away to. It's like, that's a, that's a crappy story, right? Like, I don't want to be a part of that story. But the story where God is reclaiming the world that fell into rebellion and this world is now his. And like that verse in Revelation that the kingdoms of man have become, like past tense, the kingdom of Lord God and his Christ, his anointed, boom, like that's that's the story. And now we are the soldiers like at Normandy shores who are storming the beaches and we're running out. And those who are shooting and firing at us, we have a cosmic understanding that they're actually not the enemy. They're the ground that the battle is being fought for. And there are principalities and powers of darkness that are being thrown down by the prayers and the faithfulness of the church. And to your point that you made earlier, Jordan, is I think when we have this understanding, then you look at in Isaiah 13, it's talking about Babylon. It uses that same language that Matthew 24 uses It's about stars falling to the ground. It's, this is about the principalities of nations that are being judged by Yahweh. The principalities are being tossed to the ground or thrown to the ground, right? Jesus even says, right, talking about what was about to happen on the cross, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth, right? Why? Because Satan is cast down, his jurisdictional authority broken at the cross. And so you look at that and you're like, man, I live in a nation that needs to have its lights turned out, its principalities thrown down by God. So what's my point? Everyday faithfulness and prayer, right? And it might not be in my lifetime, but maybe in my kid's lifetime or my grandkid's lifetime, the principalities and powers at work behind the godlessness of the Western world will be thrown down and will be ripped apart by Yahweh. Yeah, it's interesting. I just thought of this right now. Like, so the story of Joshua, when Joshua, second parting of the Red Sea kind of thing, goes into the promised land, Joshua and the Israelites fail there because they end up making covenants with the people who live in the land. So they fail the task of just wiping them out, which was obviously the picture. We we all understand the imagery of Joshua. Now we have a new Joshua taking over the promised land. We're now taking over the promised land yep. with the new Joshua, the right Joshua. But like the failure Israel had in the in the first time they took the promise is they made covenants with all of these nations and God made them honor them. He couldn't wipe them out. And now, so like basically now we're taking we're taking the nations back and we can't have any quarter with them. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like this idea was like we must eradicate them completely. When I'm saying like be very I'm not meaning the people, I mean the yeah. worldviews. There is no quarter now with the new Joshua. It's like it's his way or there's no way. Yeah. There's great imagery. And then if you if you think about how Rome took over 
because they did take over almost the whole globe, right? Like, yep. and Rome's big thing was you can do whatever you want. As long as you say Caesar is Lord, we could care less what you do. You can keep your own religion. And it's like, and then the Christian message comes in and it's like, no, Jesus is Lord and there can be no other. And so it's like, you can't keep your own religion. You sub, you yeah. can become us or you're our enemy. And so there's this like nice, like, I don't know what the right word is, but there's a nice like imagery that's happening in the, in the New Testament church that they, I think they would have understood this idea of like, no, no, when you say Jesus is Lord, that means there can be no other. There's no compromise with those around them. There's no compromise with your neighbor. This is no quarter in November all the time. You know what I mean? like, um, <laughs> right. I think what it does for you is it, it does help you recognize the scope of the mission. I do think we should reiterate that, right? You have no power to slay a celestial, right? God will judge and throw down the principalities of darkness. Your job is then to go to war with the ideologies that they have set in place that keep the people enslaved. So transgenderism is a ideology, a demonic ideology that has been set up to enslave the people that God wants to save and wants to bring into his kingdom. And so your job as a Christian is to go to war with the principality by demolishing his stronghold. This is 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are powerful to destroy strongholds and every lofty argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. So transgenderism is a stronghold that the principalities of darkness are using to keep their people enslaved. Gay mirage, all of this stuff, these are ideologies, woke Christianity, right? Romans 13-ism, right? Like all of this stuff, these are strongholds that principalities of darkness have used to keep people enslaved, and the church of God is meant to war against those, break those, so that the people can be liberated and brought into the kingdom of light. Yeah, so your neighbor isn't your enemy, but your neighbor's beliefs are. That's right, exactly. Yeah, your neighbor is the one that the fight is being fought for, right? He's the spoil of war, but the enemy is the ideology that's kept him enslaved. We good with that? Loved it. Send all complaints to Chris. <laughs> no, if you honestly, if you have questions about this, I, I was saying we used to do a lot more Q&A episodes. So if you have questions about this or any of the stuff that we've talked about recently, maybe at the end of this series, we'll do like a Q&A episode. So either put it on the post or message the Rebel page on Facebook or, or message Chris and I if you have our, our contact information. And maybe we'll do a Q&A episode that wraps up this whole paradigm shift series. Sound good? That'd be great. All right. Cool. See you next week. <laughs>